Good morning. My name is Dan Margulies. I'm filling in for Rabbi Linzer. Today is August 1st. It is the 26th of Tammuz. Rosh Chodesh is on Friday. And we are on Bavakama Samach Bez 62, around 10 lines down, where it says Amar Rava. These cases start to get into some of the little bits and pieces that were brought up by the Mishnah. The Mishnah mentioned a machlokas between Rabbi Huda and Chachamim about Tamun. That is, things that are concealed, hidden inside of a haystack, and the haystack was burned up. So obviously the person who lit the fire is liable for the damage to the haystack. The question is whether or not items which were hidden inside, uh, which presumably the, the owner of the fire was not aware of, or should not have needed to be aware of, uh, so the liability there, and then in which cases would you be liable for those kinds of things as well. So it extends to a broader discussion of of liability based on how much shmira, how much uh, guardianship did the person accept upon themselves or not. So that's Rava's case. So it says, Amar Rava. Rava said, Hanotin dinar zahav isha. A person gave a golden coin to a woman. Obviously the fact that it's a woman is not relevant to the case. It just happens to be um, that that was the case that Rava was dealing with. So you gave a golden coin to a woman. But Amar la hizari bo shel kesethu. And he said to her, Be careful with it. It's made of silver. Um, so, in fact, he was lying to her or misleading her. So, if she damaged it directly, that is, she threw it into a fire, she hit it with a hammer, something like that, then she should pay back the value of a gold dinar, which we know is usually 25 times the value of silver dinar in the Gemara. Obviously, the exchange rates between silver and gold have changed somewhat since the time of the Gemara. Whether that's a fixed rate or whether that's uh, variable is an interesting question. So, Mishum da Amar La, my Why? Why did you have to go and destroy it? Meaning, the fact that she went and damaged it, so she should accept upon herself full liability for whatever, whatever it was, even if she wasn't aware that it was made of gold. Okay. Pashabo, but what if while she was watching it, she w- did something negligent? We know that shomrim, guardians over different kinds of property, are uh, liable if if they do something negligent that causes damage to the object. Mishalemet shel kesef, she only pays back a silver dinar. De amrale, she can say back to him, nitiruta de kaspa kabili alai, nitiruta de dahavelo kabili alai. I only accepted upon myself the level of of shmira to guard over something made of silver. That is, she only thought that it was made of silver, and so that whole time, she only accepted upon herself that level of liability as a shomer, as a shomeret. So in that case, uh, she would only pay back silver dinar and not a gold dinar. Okay, so that's Rav's statement. Let's just turn to the Mordechai quickly. The Mordechai uses this in a very interesting case. The Mordechai has a case. shal mishimon saif. So Ruvain borrowed a sword that Shimon had as a mashkon, as a collateral, on a loan that he had, had, had given to a non-Jewish person. So a non-Jewish person borrowed money from Shimon. Shimon has the sword as collateral. And then Ruvain borrowed the sword. Okay? The Avdo, he lost it while he borrowed it. The Haya Shoel, Shimon Davar Gadol. And then the non-Jew comes back and says, this was actually a very valuable antique sword that was worth a lot, a lot, a lot of money, and you didn't even know about it. And therefore, now Shimon is trying to claim that from Ruvain. And the way the, the Mordechai rules is he says, no, 
The Shomer only accepted upon himself, the Shoel, the borrower, only thought that it was a regular sword. So he only accepted upon himself the level of Shmira for the value of what he thought a regular sword was worth and not a fancy, fancy heirloom. But at the end he says, Sarach Yun. The Mordechai says, really, I'm not sure. Maybe it's not totally analogous to the case in the Gemara. And Yamshel Shlomo, the Maharshal, explains the difference, which is that in a case here in the Gemara, the Gemara's case is sort of you you had a reasonable expectation um, sorry, it would be unreasonable to expect anything more why? because the person giving her the coin the man giving her the coin said it is made of silver so he told her how much Shmira she should ha- expect or he was actually trying to mislead her but in, in this case where Reuben borrowed the sword from Shimon, there was no no deception, and he, he just said, okay, here's the sword, sort of take it at face value, it could be worth however much, you don't know, but there was no explicit mention. So that becomes the machokas between the Mordechai and the Yamshul Shlomo about a, a parallel case, interestingly, just thinking about also, it, it underlies the fact, the historical reality, which is that Jews were very often in possession of uh, collateral on loans from non-Jews. They, they were very often involved in lending money. So that kind of mercantile trade uh, economy uh, influenced some of the cases that came to came to the rabbis at the time. Okay, so we are on Samach Bet Amud Aleph, and we'll continue. So Amr Rebbe Mordechai Ravashi. So Rebbe Mordechai said to Ravashi, so atun b'derava matinutala anan mimatnita pshitalan. So what you're going to tell me that's the case from Rava? What do you mean? Why do you need to quote it from Rava? That's what this exact brisa says. So what does the brisa say? So because he's obviously saying I can learn the exact same halacha from the brisa. So chitin v'chipan b'sorin. If a person got permission to bring a load of wheat into the chaser and leave it there in a big pile. And in the end, he first dumped the wheat, and then he put barley on top. Barley, we know, is worth less money. Or, se'orin v'chipan v'chipten. Or, he first put uh, barley, and then covered it up with wheat. So, in one way or another, what is the main part of the haystack is actually covered up with something else. Either if it looks like it's worth more, or it looks like it's worth less. Okay. So, e'en ha'mashalei me'ladim se'orin bilvad. If it becomes damaged, he only pays for seorim. He only pays for barley. One way or another. Either because, in the end, the, the thing that got burned up was barley. The fact that it had wheat on the outside was just a deception. Or, the thing that got burned up was wheat, but then that, that's tamun. It was hidden inside. So, either way, the most he'll be able to claim is the worth of the, of the barley. So, Alma Amar Lei, So, in that case, because the, the person who is watching it can always claim, I only accept it upon myself to guard over a barley, which is worth less, and not the wheat that's worth more. So, so too, the woman can say, she can always claim I never accepted to be a guardian over gold. Okay. I'm a Rav. So now a new case. Rav said, I remember we learned a halacha about something about Rabbi Yehuda's shita, and I don't remember what it was. So Amar Shmuel, the Leah the Abba Mai Sham the Rabbi Yehuda. So does meaning Shmuel, who is Rav's colleague, speaks to him very respectfully. He speaks to him in the third person. He calls him Abba. Oh, the door is locked. Uh, someone opened the door. Uh, and does does Abba, does father not know, um, meaning Abba, Rav is also called Abba. Uh, so does, does Rav not know 
what that halacha was from Rabbi Yehuda. The Rabbi Yehuda is Mechayev al Nizkei Tamun Be'esh. So the fact is, we know that Rabbi Yehuda says you're Chayev for Tamun. That is, if something was concealed inside the fire, uh, inside the haystack, and the haystack burned down, that you're still liable for whatever was hidden inside. So the other halacha connected to Rabbi Yehuda's Shita that Rav had learned, which he had forgotten, Asuta Chanas Nigzal Be'esho. So they also made the takanas nigzal, that is some sort of takana, the rabbanan takana, to help a person who was stolen from. So what does this mean? This is referring to Mesechah Shavuos. In Mesechah Shavuos, we see not only the Shavuos del Raisa, that is major categories of oaths that you take in court at a, at a biblical level, and the biblical oaths are almost always nishbav and iftar. You take a shvua to get out of an obligation. Someone comes to you in a court case to make you liable, and you can exempt yourself by taking an oath. But the rabbis instituted many types of oaths that are the reverse, that are in cases where it's uncertain who, who should win the court case, or, or if the court case has already been determined, but it's unsure how much should be paid out, then the, the um, claimant makes an, uh, takes an oath in order to collect. Nishba venotel. And those are the rabbinic oaths. So this is one of those cases. That is, suppose a person got stolen from. Someone stole uh, my wallet. And then I finally catch the thief, but he's passed it on to somebody else. And he says, yeah, but there were only $2 in your wallet. And I said, what do you mean? There were $200 in my wallet. Okay, so how much should the thief have to pay? So in that case, the person whose wallet it was, the nigzal, the person who was stolen from, takes an oath to swear that it was 200 and then the thief has to pay 200 so that's the nishba ben hotel that's a rabbinic oath that was instituted by the rabbis because otherwise a person who was stolen from even if the thief admits to it is, is going to get cheated out of his money so that was called takanas exal so according to Rabbi, within Rabbi Huda's shita Rav had learned that even though Rabbi, since Rabbi Huda says you're chayev for tamun be'esh that is something concealed within the haystack that got burned up you're also liable for and you have to pay back so then you have to make takanas nigzal because the person who owned that property is going to claim well yeah it was all sorts of expensive things and the person whose fire it was can say what do you mean it was tamun nobody knows what it was so there's no way to know how much he should be liable for so that's why the person who was damaged should take this shvua uh, in order to clarify how much money was at stake in this case Okay, so therefore, it makes perfect sense uh, within Rabbi Huda's Shitta to say that they made Takanas Nigzal as well. By Amemar. So Amemar asked. Now, Amemar is much later than Rav and Shmuel. Amemar asked the question, Asu Takanas Nigzal by Moser or Lo? So do we make Takanas Nigzal by a Moser? A Moser is a person who had turned over someone else's money to the non-Jewish authorities. We know, obviously, uh, there's a lot been discussed nowadays about how much these halachos apply to uh, modern governments that have modern criminal justice system and all sorts of things. Um, I forget now which post it was. I think it may have been the Titeliezer who says the extent to which we apply the halachos of Moser is inversely proportional to how much we say Dina de Malchusa Dina. That is, if we're comfortable with the extent to which the civil authorities exert their power over civil law, criminal law in the countries we live in, then we should be less concerned or less fearful that if a Jewish person turns another Jewish person over to those authorities that they're going to do anything unscrupulous or illegal. That is, we trust them. 
So if we trust the civil authorities, then we don't have to worry about Moser so much. The problem is much more in a case where there's a discriminatory government or there's an anti-Semitic government which is going to manipulate the law against a Jew. And therefore, if one Jewish person turns another Jewish person over to a court system which is going to treat them unfairly, well then obviously what you've done is you've set up a case where that person's money is going to be taken away. Or in this case, uh, perhaps they're going to be overcharged on taxes, things like that. So Moser, Moser, Mamona Shachavero, you're giving over someone else's money to the authorities. So in that case, it's a kind of theft. Because what did you do? You said, oh, so-and-so owes this much money in back taxes, and you told the government. Well, maybe he doesn't really owe that much money, but what you're doing is you're getting the government to take his money away. So that's a kind of gzela, that's a kind of theft. And the problem is, you know, once they take the money away, so then the person is going to need to claim, well, how much money did I lose because of this? He's going to need to kind of nigzal as well. So that's on Neymar's question, but he doesn't know whether Chazal actually enacted that shavuah in that case or not. In other words, um, perhaps you can say, is it really like a kind of, of gazelle or not? So we're going to see. So, Ali Belamandamar lo dainin so he says according to the one who says we don't treat cases of Garmei as as liable well then it's obvious because this is at best a kind of Garmei because what did you do you told someone else to take this person's money away you didn't have any direct action involved and so therefore the, the worst you can say is that it was Garmei and therefore if we don't treat Garmei as a real Nezek then there's nothing you can say here Okay, but if we hold like the opinion that says that we do uh, consider Dine de Garmei and look in Rashi, Rashi says, "Wait, hold your horses. We're getting there in Kufyud Zayin Amudbeis. We'll be there in a few months." Okay, so according to Amemar, Asu Takanas Nigzal Moser. So they did apply Takanas Nigzal to the case of Moser. Olo, and that's the question. Should you take this oath and take the money or not? He says, take you. So Amemar's question is left unanswered. Okay. So, number one, the machokis about Dine de Garme here seems interesting. That is, we have one opinion that says we don't consider Dine de Garme. That is, it's basically the same as Grama. We say Grama Benedikin is Pasr. The opinion that says Dine de Garme is Chayev, still we have a difference between the case of Garme and um, a regular Nezek, seemingly. Because there's still a machlokas about whether or not you would say Takanas Nigzal or not. So it becomes a question. Tosos Ravina Paris here, based on the Tosos on Nundalad, says, well, this, this sugi is proof that even if you hold by Garmei, it's not a real, it's not Midoraisa. It can't be the same as regular Nezek, because otherwise, why would there even be a question? Once you say Dine de Garmei, it will be equivalent to regular Nezek. And the Ramban, is of the opinion, no, Dine de Garme is Doraisa. It's equivalent to regular Nezek, and so the Ramban has to say, nonetheless, there must be a difference here between uh, the kind of damage caused by Garme and uh, direct damage, even though they both operate at the Doraisa level. So there's that distinction there between them, even though they're somewhat equivalent. Okay. So it's the law... Left as a teku, it's unresolved. The problem with teku, of course, we don't know how to pass him whether or not we would say takanas nigzal in this case, is then what do you do if this case comes up? Who, who wins? Because what happens? We have now a case, someone says, yeah, it was Moser him to the government, but they only charged him $5. And this guy says, no, he was Moser me to the government and they charged me $500. So who pays how much? 
So if you look in the Tosos, Asu Takana Snigdal Bemoser Alo, so Tosos first quotes from the Rif, Kagon Sheyesh Edim Shemasur, the Ibe Bemono, the Enyodin Kama. So, take Ulukul, take the Mamona Lakula. So we have to pass and take Ulukula in Mamona's cases, and Lakula means you can only make him pay the $5, because anything more than that, you need proof to be able to pay, make someone pay. Okay? Haigon, interestingly enough, Katushi Shababi told Mechza, you pay half. That is, take the difference between 5 and 500 is 495. 495 and half is 242. 200, what? 247.5. 247.5, right. Uh, okay. Uh, so that's, so because it's a Maman like uh, Sunchus' opinion, we should split the difference. And the Ri doesn't like either of those. The we, we shouldn't make you chayv at all. Because teku means, fundamentally, we can't do anything. Not just you should pay the makil position, but actually that the teku means, in this case, that we can't resolve the case at all. Okay. And the Rabbeinu Tam has an answer. So, anyway, it's just interesting to see that this, the way we resolve a teku in this case becomes a bit tricky. Because there's a chumra and there's a kula, and it's chumra for one and the kula for another. It becomes complicated. Okay. So, then we continue the Gemara on the fifth wide line on Samach Bet Amudal. A person kicked his friend's money box. Okay? Now, obviously, kicking it isn't enough. It has to be, you kicked it into some place where it disappeared or it got totally lost. Okay? So, Shadi ibn Ahara, and it went into the river. So, Atamare, the owner of the money box came to Amar. And he says, well, this is how much money was in the money box. Well, that makes sense. That's kind of like Takanas Nigzal. He's making a claim of how much money he was lost, and hopefully it seems like we should be able to get him back his money. So you have to Ravashi. Ravashi was sitting, the Kamayin Bay. Um, so Ravashi says, was sitting down and thinking carefully about this case. He said, I don't know what to do exactly. Okay. And Ravina said to Ravashi, perhaps said directly to Ravashi to advise him on this case. Uh, what should be the din? Well, Hainu Matnitin, isn't this the case in the, in the Mishnah? Uh, Ditanan, Umodim Chachamim, Le Rabbi Yehuda, Bibmadlikit Habira, Shemeshalem Kol Shebetocho. That the Chachamim agree to Rabbi Yehuda that if a person lit a fire and it burned up the house, that you have to pay back whatever was in the house. Whatever is in a house doesn't count as Tamun the same way that it would count in a haystack. And so even the Chachamim agree that whatever is in the house, you have to pay back. But what do Chachamim say you have to pay back? What, to pay back whatever it is that people normally keep in their houses. That is, you can't claim above and beyond that. You can't say, oh, I have some antique thing and whatever it was worth a lot of money because then you have no proof. And then they'll say, well, that's just like Tamun. That is, it's not expected. But just like Chachamim would even admit something that might be Tamun um, that was to be expected, well, then the liability makes sense because the liability, the exemption by Tamun is that you wouldn't have expected it to be there. But if it's something that you would have expected to be there, then it makes perfect sense that you should have to pay. Okay, so too in this case, uh, so one case would be if you're claiming money for what's in the box, right? So, he claimed that it was full of pearls, it was full of jewels. And so, obviously, the claim he's making is beyond what you would have expected in this case. He had a, a cash box 
fine, if it would have been full of money, it would have been one thing. That would have been a normal claim. But here he's saying, I had something much more valuable hidden inside the box, and therefore, that's the question why Ravashi even had a question. And that's why um, Rav Achabrei Dereva's answer does, said, oh, isn't it a Mishnah? Well, Ravashi had to actually sit and think about it because it wasn't just that Mishnah. The claim was actually he was making a higher claim. And nonetheless, maybe he would have even considered that. So we'll have to see. Okay. So, do people normally put pearls in their cash boxes? Although, maybe they don't, Teku, and is again left unresolved. So that is, Ravashi still was unsure how to paskin in this case. Do so we say, well, a cash box is just where you put valuable things, and even putting pearls there would be somewhat expected, and that's why it would be reasonable to, to allow him to take Takanas Nigzal, perhaps, or even just to pay back even without having to take a Shvua in this case, because it's, it's exactly like the Mishnah. Or maybe there's a difference, it's not expected, and therefore there would be a difference. Yeah? If somebody could bring a witness that said, I saw this valuable painting in the house, or the jewel in the box... So perhaps it becomes an interesting question if you could, you know, a week ago I had the pearls in the box, but then I took the pearls out, put money in, and then he kicked the box. So, you know, how much time in between uh, would would make the witness relevant? Presumably it would have to be relatively soon before the, the damage occurred. I'm, I mean, I imagine for both the house and this, but maybe you would have to factor in Ah, so we're going to see. Okay. That's going to come up in the question of, of who who is involved may may impact this as well. Um, just one other point, which is that in a totally different context, context in Masachas Kalim, talking about different types of containers, the Mishnah distinguished between a Tzror Hamar Galit, a piece of leather that's been folded up to hold pearls, and uh, a tzor, tzor Ma'ot, that you've made the same kind of pouch to put uh, coins in. Because the one that you put the pearls, usually you're not opening it and closing it. So it retains its status as a Kli more permanently. The one that you use for your wallet, well, you open it up, take the money out, put the money in, close it back up again every day. It could be multiple times a day. So it's much less a permanent Kli. But the, the leather piece that you're using to hold pearls, you close it up and you leave it for a year at a time. Two years, you never check on your pearls. You put them in the bank. So that kind of difference of how people are accessing and how people are using money versus pearls comes up in a number of other contexts. Um, okay. So, Amar Levi Yimri Levi so, Rav Yemar said to Ravashi, Tain kased the kaspa bibiramai. What if a person claimed there was a silver goblet in my house when the house burned down? Uh, so, what should be the case? Amar le, chazina i'in shiyamaydhu di'itlay kased the kaspa. So we should see, well, is he a, a fancy, important, rich person that he has a silver goblet in his house in order that that would be a reasonable claim? So, inami or perhaps he's a reliable person who even though he's not rich enough to own a silver cup but people would have asked him to be their shomer that is he's a reliable person who he could have been the shomer for someone else okay so if that's the case then he can take the shvua and collect that is take as if the same takanas nigzal kind of nishba vinotel shvua in order to actually collect the full value okay so So if not, then there's no reason for us to assume that he, he still that he would have such a valuable object that he would um, be it would make any sense for him to make such a claim. Uh, interestingly enough, you could say so. Who cares? He should still be allowed the opportunity to take the shvua. Interestingly enough, 
we still need grounds. We still need a certain amount of grounds to authorize him to take a shvua in that case. Uh, so, Jenna, that actually answers your question directly, which is, is that the economic status or perhaps the person's reliability and trustworthiness come into play in terms of evaluating whether this claim is a reasonable claim to say, yeah, there was this fancy object in my house or not. And it goes, uh, David, your question as well. Okay. So, I'm a Rav Abba Bray Dirav, Aviel Ravashi. Ma bin Gazan Lechamsan. Now, a totally different question. Uh, interesting. A lot of Mepharshim try to say, like, why is this here? It seems totally off topic, but uh, not for now. Tosa seems to discuss it quite a bit. Um, okay. What is the difference between a Gazlan, an armed robber, or a robber at least, and a Hamsan? Someone who we're going to see, the Hamsan is someone who pressures someone into, stealing, uh, into selling something that they really didn't want to sell. That's what it seems like. So what's the difference between Gazlan and Hamsan? A Hamsan actually pays the money. And Gazlan lo yahiv dami. A Gazlan doesn't pay for it. A Gazlan took it from you, and the Hamsan um, is the one who forced you to sell it. Now, interestingly enough, they're basically being equated in terms of what Avera is at play here, uh, perhaps. Uh, in the end, what happened? This person came to you and attacked you and made, you give, made them give you something. Perhaps the difference, really, I mean, the major difference is whether or not they paid for it. That is, is it theft or not? Uh, Hamsan obviously has different halachos. Uh, and what, what Avera have you violated if you're a Hamsan, really? That's the other question. So it seems like, and again, the Rishonim deal with this at length, the question is uh, Lotachmod. Lotachmod seems to include this kind of uh, Avera of forcing someone to sell something that they didn't want. Um, and for people who, who are not familiar with it, perhaps it's good to take a, take a look later. The Rambam and the Ravid have a, I would say, relatively classic machokas about uh, Lotachmod. The Rambam seems to say Lotachmod, not covenanting someone else's property. That's Lav Shein Bo It has no active uh, active action in, in the violation. Therefore, that's why you don't, get, um, you don't get lashes for that. Because there's no action. All, it was a mental or a psychological state of wanting something from someone else, even if it needs uh, a certain kind of result. It's not just, oh, I wanted someone something, but I actually had to pressure them to do something. So then the rabbit says, well, what do you mean? If the whole point is that you had to pressure them to give it to you, you had to uh, bug them until they sold it to you, so what do you mean it's a lab shame b'maisa? Of course, that, that's the maisa, that's the action. So the rabbit says, no, the difference is because it's uh, you can pay it back, and that's why you don't get makos. You don't get makos just like if you're a thief, you don't get makos, because you pay back the money. Um, and so, obviously, there's a big discussion about like what actually is the violation of lo tachmod. It's the, perhaps the most perplexing of the Ten Commandments, uh, because... Again, there's a big machokas. What does it mean? Is it only psychological? Is it uh, sort of connected to the idea of stealing? Um, and one other point is, is that um, the Sefer Achinuch, in talking about Lot Tisave, the, uh, the mitzvah as it appears in Dvarim, the Sefer Achinuch says, okay, so he says uh, um, Lot Tisave applies to non-Jews as well. And what do you mean? We have only seven mitzvot b'nei noach. Which of the seven mitzvot b'nei noach is Lot Tisave? He says it's actually part of uh, of Gnei ben Gzela, of theft. And the reason why is because actually the seven mitzvot b'nei noach are just major categories, and they have subcategories of mitzvot within them. Obviously, Avodazara contains many different uh, prohibitions. Gilui Arayos contains many different prohibitions, but their headings, the seven major categories, each has uh, sub-mitzvot as well. Okay. So that's the difference between Hamsan and Gazlan is whether they pay or not. I'm really like, is it really true that if a person gives the money, they're a Hamsan? But Rav Huna talked about exactly this kind of case. If they, a person threatened you and forced you to sell something, you know, you're at gunpoint and say, sell me your car, 
uh, here, here, here's twenty thousand dollars. Give me your car at gunpoint. That's a good sale. So what? What? That's not a constant. That's a that's a sale. The fact that you were under duress, okay, fine, but nonetheless, meaning in the end you still paid the money. So lo kasha, there's no difference. Uh, here's the distinction. Had amar rotsani, had de lo amar rotsani. It's the difference whether the person said I want to or not. That is, the person said, okay, fine, I'll do it, and get, gives the uh, he gets the twenty thousand dollars, gives away with the car, uh, is different than if he never said Rotani. If he never said Rotani, that's a Hamsan. That In that case, he's been forced to the point of never being willing to go through with it or not. Um, of course, this distinction about Rotani and not, the Rambam doesn't quote in Mishnah Torah. So it's interesting to consider, well, that seems to be the answer here between what's the difference between a Hamsan compared to Ravuna's case, and then the Rambam leaves it out. Um, more to be said about that. Let's turn the page. Last Mishnah in Parakakones. The Mishnah says, if a spark flies out from underneath the hammer, that is the hammer of a blacksmith of some kind, uh, and it flew from the Rishud HaYachid into Rishud HaRabim, because that's how Esh works. Esh spreads. So a gates is categorized as Esh in that sense. A camel was loaded up, very piled up with uh, flax, flax being very flammable, and the camel was walking through Rishud Arabim in the street, and the flax, because it was so overladen, the flax pushed through the window into somebody's store and lit on fire on the candle, the Dalko Benero Shochanvani, and it lit on the lamp or the candle of the shop owner, the Hidlik and Habira, and then the fire on top of the camel lit the whole building on fire, Balgamal Chayav. The owner of the camel is liable because the camel should not have been uh, carrying such a flammable object in such a way that it would actually penetrate into someone else's property. That is, it's one thing if the camel was just walking in the street normally. But if the camel's uh, flax was so big that it pushed into Rishud Yachid, into a place where the person didn't think they would have to be so careful about the lamp, then that's the camel owner's fault. If the shop owner put his lamp outside, that is, in Rishud HaRabim, so he is Chayav, because the whole problem is that he put something dangerous, in this case, the fire, into the Rishud HaRabim. So obviously, anyone who's going to be damaged by that, even if it burns down a whole building, he is liable because he put it in a place where it wasn't secure and it wasn't safe. So interestingly enough, we see multiple times in Chazal, not just here, but also in other places, that the equivalent of bringing the fuel for the fire and bringing the flame itself. That is, here what happened? Either the Baal HaGamal brought the fuel to the lamp. Well, in that case, he's, he's liable because he brought the fuel and fed the fire. Or if the person brought the fire into the place where the Gamal was, then the person who brought the fire is Chayab. So actually, both cases, we see it's similar to Chod Shabbat. It comes up, there's a, a Bryce and Beitza. Um, so a number of cases where you see the equivalence between bringing the fuel and bringing the fire. Ah, and one of the only seven places in the Mishnah that talks about Hanukkah, Rabbi Huda Omer, Bener Hanukkah Patur. If it was a Hanukkah candle that you were sitting out in Rashut Harabim, then even in that case, the Chanbani will be Patur, because there's a special license we're going to see to put your... Hanukkah candle into the public street. Yes? It's not just a question of who brought what. It's also a question of treating unreduced or robbed. Correct. That is also true. Which is that the Balagamal 
Transporting something through Shir Rabim is one thing, and putting your candle, you're not going to put your candle into the street, you're going to put your candle on your, on your shop desk. Exactly, that, that's the case, exactly. So now the question is, what if they both had Rishus? Well, then it's going to be whoever did something different. So in that case, it's going to be, right. Okay, Amar Ravina Mash made the Rava. So Ravina said in the name of Rabba, From Rabbi Yehuda's position, we can learn that it is a mitzvah to put the Hanukkah candle within ten tvachim of the ground. Now, if you ask most people where they put their Hanukkah candle, most people probably put it on a table or something. Our table's uh, relatively close to ten tvachim. Um, but some people put it on the windowsill, some people put it up higher. It uh, becomes a question. So we know that Bidyevit, or in certain cases, particularly for people who live in apartment buildings, um, the the laws are more uh, uh, flexible. For an apartment building, if you hadar baliyah, you just put it in the window facing Rashid Harabim, that's the best you can do, so that's what you do. But in the case where a person has a house and they're putting it out by the street, it has to be within 10 Fahim of the ground. Allah has been written about that uh, from a Hasidic perspective, in particular about the flame of Hanukkah being close to the ground and where it's darkest, where it's you know deep down. It's not something you, you bring very high up to spread the light everywhere. It's something sort of smaller and, and deeper. Um, okay. So, if you would have said maybe you could put it above ten tzachim, am I? I'm a Rabbi Huda near Hanukkah Pater. So why should you say that you're Pater if, if it caught the camel on fire? Then the safe thing to do if you're putting it out in the street would be to put it somewhere up here so that it's above wherever there would be any risk of lighting a camel on fire. You put it up here, you know, three amot above the Rishud HaRabim uh, and that should be it should solve the problem tangentially we also remember from Hilchot Shabbat um, that only the lowest ten Tfachim of Rishud HaRabim are halachically categorized as Rishud HaRabim we know the halacha throwing the figs against the wall that if the fig lands on the wall above ten Tfachim it's actually not considered to be carrying because even though it comes to rest it comes to rest in a place that's not Rishud HaRabim it comes to rest above ten Tfachim it's called Makom Tor it's a it's a a totally exempted uh, domain. So, so to here, the Hanukkah candle actually has to be in the Rishud Harabim part of Rishud Harabim and not above that. Um, so, the, the, if if you could have put it in a safer place, then you would be chayev. Comes Rabbi Yehuda to say it must be put in a place where davka actually is dangerous. That is, if there's a safe place up here and you could put it there, no, 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 you have to put it down here, even though it's unsafe. Okay. So, I'm going to read Obviously, you have to put it uh, within ten tzachim of the ground. Maybe you could say even above ten tzachim. So then, why? So then, but then, if you're allowed to put it above ten tzachim, why would you not say? So then, he has an obligation to put it someplace safe, that is above the level of a camel and its rider. The fact that you're doing the mitzvah, the rabbis did not make you uh, put it in a place that's more difficult. You know, you need to get a special thing attached to your wall and all sorts of stuff to put it up very high. So the rabbi said, no, 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 you're doing a mitzvah, we're going to make it easy for you, put it down low. That is, even according to the opinion that it could be put above ten tzachim, still, you'll be patur if it causes damage because you put it out in the street, you put it out in the street, and that's where you were supposed to put it. Whether or not it was above ten tzachim, below ten tzachim, the point is we don't make you put it anywhere uh, safe because we want you to be able to do the mitzvah. 
Uh, Hanukkah candles, interestingly enough, one of the mitzvot for which the rabbis encourage people very strongly that they have to do this mitzvah, even shoel al-aptachim, you have to beg for money in order to be able to afford oil for a Hanukkah lamp. Uh, so here too, the rabbis wanted to enable people to do this mitzvah as best as possible, even if it meant, in this case, putting something rather dangerous into the public street. Okay, Amr of Gahana Darash Rav Nassim Bar Miniumi, Mishmei de Rebbe Tanchum, near Hanukkah Shinich, Lamalama Estrim Amma, if you put your Hanukkah candle above 20 amot, very high, 20 amot is around what, um, 30 feet or so. Psula kesuka uke mavoi. It's like a sukkah and like a mavoi. The sukkah, of course, we know uh, the first staff in sukkah, uh, the three way machloka samurai about why the sukkah cannot be uh, taller than 20 amot. Um, Rabba's opinion, uh, the opinion that's most often quoted, is because if, if you are sitting in a sukkah that is taller than 20 amot, you won't recognize that you're sitting in a sukkah at that point. You'll, you won't realize it. You won't be able to see the roof. You won't be able to see the schach because it's too tall. And that's the opinion that actually fits the best here. That is, if it's above 20 amot, you won't see it normally because it's so high. People walking in the street, people don't look up 30 feet high above the street. Um, and therefore, you won't be able to notice the roof. Uh, the other opinions are Bizera says because the reason is that um, a person um, with the sukkah Sorry, I'm forgetting Rabbi Zerah's opinion. Rabbi's uh, opinion is that um, you make, to, in order to build something that's 20 amot tall, you actually have to make it uh, very durable, very permanent, and therefore if you're building something very bur- uh, durable, that's called the dirat keva, not dirat arai. That's not a, a temporary structure that the sukkah is supposed to be. It's actually much more permanent. The mavoi, the mavoi is the cross beam at the entranceway to the to uh, an alleyway. Um, so the uh, cross beam at the entranceway of the uh, the kora, sorry, the kora is the cross beam that you put at the entranceway to the mavoi to the alleyway. The first mission on Erevin also has to be below 20 amot, and for the same reason that above 20 amot, a person won't recognize it. So when they come to the end of the mavoi where the eruv ends, they won't realize it, and then they'll walk straight into Rishud Harabim. Interestingly enough, you know, our modern Erevin very often are not so visible to the untrained eye. Uh, it actually seems to be for Chazal was a major, a major um, uh, concern is that people would reach the edge of where the Eruv was and would keep going. Uh, so perhaps we have a similar question nowadays in how much the way they're constructed or the way uh, they're publicized perhaps uh, fulfills that requirement as well. So you can say Hadran al-Hakonis, that's the end of Perak Hakonis. So we'll continue with Perak Meruba uh, right now. Perak Meruba starts our discussion of Geneva and Gezela, theft. Uh, we've already seen a couple of topics come up about this already. Uh, it's going to be dealt with in much more depth. The Mishnah says, mm-hmm. The Torah provides two different kinds of fines in the case of Geneva, in the case of uh, theft, uh, uh, burglary, that is, um, is something done in secret. Uh, if you steal something as a Ganav, you have to pay it back, and you have to pay back Kefil. That is a 100% value fine. That is Kefil, double the value. That is how much you have to pay back. And the Torah provides a special halacha that in a case of stealing a sheep uh, or a uh, cow, then if you either uh, slaughtered the animal or if you sold it to someone else, then you have to pay back a fine four or f- and five times the value of the animal. That is four times for a sheep and five times for the cow. Um, and that's actually a, a very steep uh, fine. Uh, so we're going to see uh, all that discussed here. Um, but the point is, there are more cases, perhaps, or there, there is more about the cases of Kefel 
is more general or more broadly applicable than Arba Vechamisha. Dal Vehei. Shemida Tashlame Kefel no Heged Ben Bedevarshe Yeshbo Ruachaim U Ben Bedevarshe Imbo Ruachaim. Kefel applies to both animals and inanimate objects. Umida Tashlame Arba Vechamisha Eino no Heged Ela Beshor Vesebilvad. And Dal Vehei only applies to an, a cow and a sheep. Shenemar Ki Ignov Ish Shorosef A person steals a, a an ox or a sheep Utevacho Mecharo and slaughters it or sells it. The Gomer. So that's a explicit pasuk that includes that, that special halacha about that fine and it doesn't apply to anything else so a thief who steals from a thief does not pay kefel and if a person had already stolen the animal and then a different person comes and slaughters it or sells it that is two different people did the theft first and then the slaughtering or uh, uh, selling Mishalim Tashlumi does not pay Tashlumi Arba B'chamisha he doesn't pay Dalvehe in that case because two different people were involved and the Gonim Minagan a person stole from a thief we're going to see is a special limud Rashi says it was stolen from the person's house and not from the thief's house uh, so stealing from a thief doesn't have the same level of liability as stealing from the original owner uh, interestingly enough we see in Bava Basra and a few other places cases where actually the original owner tries to steal back the object from the thief he felt he wasn't getting due process in the courts uh, cases come up as well so the Gemara is going to ask about this word meruba. Uh, you see there's this long tosis here we're going to get to that in just a second Okay, so What about the fact that Kefel applies both to Ganav, a thief, and also Toin Tainas Ganav. We dealt with this about a week ago. Toin Tainas Ganav is a case of a Shomer. A Shomer uh, is watching an object. In this case, it must be a Shomer Chinam. A Shomer Chinam tries to exempt his liability by saying that the object was lost. Uh, sorry, not was lost, was stolen. Shomachinim is not liable if the object is stolen. Therefore, he should get off scot-free. He has to take Shavuot HaShomrim, a Deoraisa oath, to exempt himself. Like I said before, Anishba uh, Beniftar. And then, witnesses come and prove that in fact he had been lying and he had stolen the object himself. Then, such a person is called Toin Tainas Ganav. That is, it was a Shomer who made a claim that the object had been stolen, is proven wrong, and so he has to, obviously he has to give back the object but also he has to pay kefil according to this Gemara that is Toin Tainas Ganav is categorized similarly to Ganav that is Toin Tainas Ganav claiming that the object was stolen is like being a thief yourself interestingly enough there are going to be other exceptions to that we're going to see Umida applies and does not apply in Toin Tainas Ganav so isn't that one more way by which Kefel is more expansive than the uh, Katani, and it wasn't mentioned in the Mishnah. So the, the question, implicit question here is, shouldn't the Mishnah have listed all of the ways in which Kefel is more expansive than Dalad Vehei? So Misaelele Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, the Amr Rabbi Chia Bar Abba Amar Yochanan, this supports the opinion of Rabbi Chia Bar Abba, who quoted from Rabbi Yochanan, had toin tainas ganav bepikadon, someone who claims that the object he was watching was stolen, mishalim tashlumi kefel, does pay back kefel, tavachu machar mishalim tashlumi arba bechamisha, and if he slaughtered it or sold it, he does pay dal vehe. That is, don't distinguish between dal vehe and kefel regarding toin tainas ganav. Ike da Amre. 
there are those who would say it differently. If you are towing Tanas Ganav, you pay back Kefel. And if you slaughtered it or sold it, then you pay back four and five. So Miktani, Ein Bein, does the Mishnah say Ein Bein? These are the only differences. Like we have the Mishnayos in Masechus Megillah that list many different things. And there's Ein Bein, Shabbos, Liyama Kippurim, and things like that. All of the, limiting the distinction only to one specific, uh, or a few specific details. No, Merubeh Katani. It just says Merubeh. Kesel has more applicabilities than Dalad um, Behei. Uh, uh, Tana this year. So the Tana listed a few things and left over a few for the list. Tosos has a big question. The first Tosos, Niktani ein bein mashma hacha heichiditani ein bein lo shayek lemimartana this year. Therefore, says Tosos, it must be if the Mishnah says ein bein that there are no exceptions. Nothing was left off the list. And when it says ein bein, there are no differences. It must mean there are no differences. Comes the re meorlins. And he goes through all of these examples to show, actually, it's not true. Actually, <laughs> undermining the idea of if you want to read Merubah to be the equivalent of Ein Bain or somewhat similar. So Merubah, first of all, things are left off the list. And even Ein Bain, there are things left off the list. That is, um, the rabbinic lists are not always pristine. The Mishnah lists things for convenience, but not necessarily to be exhaustive. Um, so that's actually an important uh, dis- uh, distinction. Okay, the next part is a very long sugil, we can at least get a little bit of a start on, but it goes for quite a long time, which is all of these uh, drushos about how to apply kefil and dal behe. So let's see. Minahani umile. How do we know th- about the difference and applicability between kefil and dal behe? Detan Rabban. Al kol devar pesha. The Pasuk says about a case of, um, they're talking about, uh, when you bring um, when you bring a shvua for for um, um, uh, shomrim, klal al shor al chamor al se al salma. So then the Torah says about shomrim, it lists off several specific things about an ox, about a donkey, about a sheep, or about a piece of clothing. Prat al kol and then so that's prat. Sorry, that's, those are the details. Al kol and at the end it says al kol for everything that was lost. Chazav klal. So it says klal prat klal. It was general, then it got specific, and then it was general again. So then we limit the applicability of the klal to the types of things listed in the prat. That is the prat, the sandwich meat between the bread of the klal. Uh, so the, the prat, which is in the middle, comes to delineate the applicability of the klal. So just like the prat are things which are movable, that is not land, and gufo mamon, they have intrinsic value. Af kol davar hamitaltal the gufo mamon. So too, for things which are movable and they have intrinsic value, yatsu karkaus. So that excludes land she'inan mitaltalin because they are not movable. Yatsu abadim shehukshula karkaus. And slaves are exempted because slaves are connected uh, conceptually to the idea of land. We've seen that in a number of places. Yatsu shtaros and exclude uh, documents, uh, documents presumably uh, deeds of ownership for land, uh, that we'll see, perhaps shtaros for uh, debts as well. It's a bit of an interesting question. Even though they are movable, they do not have intrinsic value. Uh, Tosos here brings up the question about shtaros. Ah, it must be garmei. If you burn someone's shtar, that's only Dine de Garme, because the star does not have any intrinsic value. 
the question of, of course, how does that get into things like stocks and checks and things like that? Even our money nowadays, you might even say, is not really money in the same way. Even our money might operate as a certain kind of a star. And then uh, taking someone's money, ripping up someone's $100 bill, things like that, gets you into this whole question of Dina de Garmet. So it's a very interesting question. Certainly tearing up a check is much closer to kind of Dina de Garmet. A check has no intrinsic value in the same way. So in Gufan Mamon, there was a long article about checks in Rabbi Bleich, one of Rabbi Bleich's books, I think. Uh, okay. So, hektish is also excluded from these halachos. It says, your friend, and we know that re'ehu comes to exclude hektish. So, isn't it true that the prat, that is the things that were listed, also comes to include, to limit the applicability in this case, to things which their corpses are metabimimagumasa, if you touch them or if you carry them, that is dead animals, animal carcass, but only for things whose corpses are metame, uh, cause impurity to spread either by touching them or carrying them, aval slow, but not for birds. Okay, so that's a suggestion. That is, and that's going to be rejected. So birds have a different halacha of nivela, nivlataof is only metame with beisablia. That is only metame when you're eating it. But it doesn't, it doesn't uh, transmit impurity when you touch it or carry it, like a nivela from an animal. So there's a lot of lumdus about nivela ta'of. Uh, how, is it really like nivela, but it's a special way of touching it? You only touch it with your throat? Or is it actually a totally different kind of tumor and a totally different way that it's transferred? What do you mean? There's a fourth thing on the list. It's not just animals. There is a shirt mentioned on the list as well, and shirts don't have nevela. There's no such thing as a, a nevela shirt. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, no, we were talking about the animals on the list are all mammals. That is, uh, an ox, a donkey, and a sheep. And their metame, their nevela is metame b'magufamasa, unlike birds. That is, to distinguish those three from birds. Okay. So, Anam Babalachayim Kamrinan, Ema Babalachayim Dabar Shinivlata Metame Bimagamasa in Dabar Shinivlata Metame Bimagamasa Lo. So, that should lead us to the distinction between animals whose carcasses are Metame Bimagamasa, that is, mammalian carcasses, as opposed to bird carcasses, um, and they should be excluded. Because each one of the four things on the list, you can darshan your own Klaluprataklal based on it. That is, we have the Klal first. Then we have prat number one, prat number two, prat number three, and prat number four, and then we have a klal again. So between the klal, we can always make a new drasha with each of the pratim. That would be the way it would work. Okay? And if you could make each one its own drasha, then you can separate the animals uh, separate from the clothing. Because clothing, obviously, the, the laws of Nevela don't apply to clothing in that way. Okay. Aval ofoslo, and therefore it should exclude birds. In prata, it should just mention one prat, that is only mention one of the animals. The fact that it would have said shore, an ox, I would have thought only animals which are brought as korbanos. Ah, comes the Torah, because it, it, it wouldn't have mentioned donkeys. And if it had only mentioned donkeys, have I mean a kadosh bebechira in, she'in kadosh bebechira lo. And the donkeys have a special halacha about donkeys, which only applies to donkeys, which is the halacha of peter chamor. That is, the firstborn donkey from a, a donkey is the only 
non-kosher animal that has a din similar to a bechor, firstborn animal, and the firstborn donkey has to be redeemed with a sheep, and the sheep has to be given to the coin. Uh, so, so it should have said an ox and a donkey, that is to include all of the non-kosher animals and all of the kosher animals, because we would not have limited it to animals that are brought as korbanot, and we would not have limited it to animals which have a din of bechor. Okay, so selamali, why does it mention sheep? Ah, we must be mentioning sheep, because sheep comes to include birds, because it mentioned a kosher mammal again, we already had a shore, so the fact that it mentions seh comes to include birds. That is, we're trying to understand in what ways are the laws of kefel and dalbehay, in this case kefel, limited. So in this case, we're saying, well, maybe it should be limited to not apply to if you stole someone's chicken. Comes the word seh, and the word seh comes to include, uh, uh, to include birds. Okay. Uh, I think that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, this is, as I said, a long sugi. We're really stopping in the middle. Uh, this is going through all of the details and how these drushot play out, but uh, we'll get further treatment tomorrow. It continues most, if not all, of tomorrow's stuff. All right.